a German um, scientist discovered what we now know, or what they call the corpus luteum. So this is an ovary up here, and one gets, uh, we've all got all the eggs we're ever going to have before we're born. So all of the eggs that you're ever, ever going to be able to ovulate, you had while you were still in utero. And what happens is that some of these small primary follicles, eventually each month, one of them uh, will develop into a dominant egg. You will ovulate that egg. And what happens then is that the, where the, uh, the follicle that contained the egg was, you develop a cyst, and it's essentially just a small follicle that produces hormones. And he identified that female hormones were necessary for reproduction. He discovered this thing called the corpus luteum that clearly, clearly seemed to be important in driving hormones. Um, and he named progesterone, so a hormone that appeared to be important for the development of a pregnancy. Now, we didn't discover the pregnancy-specific hormone, which is something called human chorionic gonadotrophin, or HCG, until the 1920s. And it was then in the 1930s that the very earliest pregnancy tests were, were, were uh, developed. And, and what that involved um, was taking female urine, uh, getting substances from the female urine that were done injected into rats or mice and they could then see that follicles were developing in those rats and mice and that's how they first worked out that there was something in the female urine that would identify a pregnancy. Now of course it's all much fancier when I scan a patient I can see this thing would be nice to call a ring of fire on an ovary that's the blood flow surrounding this thing called the corpus luteum. So still in the 1930s, it was guesswork, mainly. Of course, in the 70s, things moved on more rapidly, and the first two-hour tests became available to doctors. And then us medics got hold of this pregnancy thing and realised we could start driving it and trying to make women feel a bit guilty about the fact they hadn't seen us earlier enough on. And by the late 70s, there was an introduction of home pregnancy tests um, that would enable women to themselves to diagnose the fact that they were pregnant, certainly perhaps three or four weeks after a missed period. Um, and then at this point, women were started to, to encourage to come and see us. So I think that just tells you just how much things have changed in terms of the basic understanding of being pregnant. And then people say often, well, of course, don't be ridiculous. Women knew they were pregnant, they missed a period, and they felt rotten. And, and, and undoubtedly, some women definitely do know they're pregnant. But remember, until the last 80 years... Most women, to be honest, were either pregnant or breastfeeding and were therefore not likely to be having regular menstrual cycles through most of their reproductive years. So the regular period is really a uh, construct of the last 100 years in which we have stopped breastfeeding so exclusively and, of course, we've got contraception as well. So it's really quite a new thing that we've been able to get the idea of, of early pregnancy testing. And if I bring you forward to 2015, it's not just about what happens when you've missed a period. Um, this test here, and it's one of many on the market, um, is able to tell you before you've missed your period whether you're pregnant or not. So I think this test here, in about 60% of cases, uh, so 60 out of 100 women who tested and were pregnant before they missed a period, you'd be able to diagnose that with this test. Now, you could argue what on earth is the point of knowing that, but um, if you're one of my patients who spent years trying to get pregnant or have had miscarriages, and you see this on the market, 
Um, well, there's the argument, if you want a glass of wine on a Friday night, you might be better testing on a Thursday, and I've had quite a few people like that. And there's just a whole load of people who are desperate to know for the first point, from the first point possible, when they might be pregnant. And this is how early it is, just so that you know. So when you ovulate, you do that about day 14 of a normal cycle. Um, ovulation occurs... Is there sperm in the right place to fertilise that egg? And if it does, you get this thing that you fertilise zygote um, the next day. And that wanders down the fallopian tube for a few days. And it doesn't actually reach the uterus until about day five. And on day five, the embryo on day five is called a blastocyst. I'll talk to you a bit more about them later. Um, even at this point hasn't actually implanted. So it's started to produce some of the pregnancy hormones, but it's not as got as far as implanted. Starts to begin the implantation process somewhere here between day six and day eight, and by day eight it will normally be successfully implanted. So that embryo, which is a ball of about 100 cells, has started to stick to the lining of the womb and just starts cells burrowing into the tissue of the lining of the womb. This test here is diagnosing this. Now, if I cast your mind back to that first graph that I showed you, what that is doing, that early pregnancy test there, is diagnosing the pregnancy before you've missed a period. And of course, I've just said to you that at least 30% of those are going to miscarry. So we're in the stage now where people are earlier and earlier knowing they're pregnant and if you contrasted that to a world of even 20 years ago, I undoubtedly have a, cl a clinic full of women who 20 years ago would never have known that they'd had a number of miscarriages. Added to the fact that we can now all tell we're pregnant incredibly early on, um, again I think Raj so showed some data a couple of weeks ago uh, looking at the changing age we're all having babies, so we know the average age of our first baby is now just above 30. Um, and if you look at the number of women having babies above 40, their first baby, it now actually is about the same number of women as those under the age of 25. So bear in mind that biologically we were all, cre you know, we were all destined to be having had a number of babies by the time of 25. We're now, actual fact, equal numbers of them having first babies at, at 40. And the big issue with that is, I mentioned earlier, that we've all got all of our eggs before we're actually born. Um, as life goes by and as you hit your late 30s and approach your early 40s, the chance of genetic damage to any single egg having already occurred, uh, meaning that when that egg is fertilised, it cannot produce a, a healthy living baby it will not go beyond the first stages of pregnancy becomes really quite high um, and this is I always feel a bit of a depressing graph for both me and most of my colleagues and half my friends and most of my patients um, because if we look at the rate of miscarriage once you hit your early 40s by the time you're 40 it's approaching 50% by the time you get to 45 about 80-90% of pregnancies will miscarry purely and simply because the genetics of the embryo aren't normal. So we've combined our later age of onset of pregnancy with our earlier detection of our pregnancies um, and therefore the incidence of miscarriage goes through the roof, especially in this age group. And one of my interests, as I said, is recurrent miscarriage and that 
not completely arbitrarily, but there is a cut-off which we say we, we think it is likely that, you know, we start worrying about whether there's an underlying cause rather than just a bad luck cause um, after women have had three miscarriages. Um, you can see here, and this is getting my GCSE maths out, that, um, that the age you are when you have your miscarriages is enormous. So if you're 28, you've got about 15% chance of having a miscarriage. Um, and so by sheer bad luck of having three miscarriages related to the fact you were unlucky and you had a genetically not normal baby, um, it's about 0.34%. If you're 40, you've got about 40% chance at 40, you have miscarriage then. A year later, about 45% chance. A couple of years later, you have your third pregnancy. So you've got about a 1 in 10 chance of just having... Uh, uh, three miscarriages in a row by the time you're over 40, 40 purely and simply because of sheer bad luck and even with two miscarriages so then again you see that you know if you're young a couple of percent it's very unlikely to happen to you once you're over 40 you're hitting a 20% chance of having a miscarriage just because um, you have bad luck chromosomal miscarriages uh, twice in a row and it's entirely age related so we've got this issue with the fact that we're all having lots more miscarriages, we're diagnosing them earlier, we're all older when we have them. And I, I think there's no two ways about it. Of course, you've got this investment problem where you're 40 and you've planned your whole career and it's brilliant because you've just got there and now it's all right because you can get and have these babies and it doesn't happen. And one thing I think it's just interesting to contrast miscarriage to um, because I think that women struggle very enormously now with miscarriage now, it is thinking about how the stillbirth rates have changed. And, and a little bit of me just sometimes wonders whether not we've replaced one with the other, but because we're so far away from the world of stillbirth, where in the 1700s you had a one in ten chance of your baby dying, and, and the definition of stillbirth uh, is, is a death between 24 weeks it's changed slightly over the years, but the current definition is between 24 weeks of gestation um, and 28 weeks postnatal. Um, and, of course, now it's a really, really... Well, lots of people argue it's a high figure, 4.7 per thousand in the UK, um, but it was, it was a 10% risk of that happening to you uh, if you were a woman being pregnant in the 1700s. And, of course, the other thing to say is this doesn't talk about the perinatal mortality or the childhood mortality, which were even more enormous. So we wiped most of that stuff out. And it's a question, it's not a statement. I don't know the answer. <laughs> but have we, have we transferred one of these tragedies that we've now more or less got over to, to another, which is the fact that we are uh, very focused on what happens now in early pregnancy? Now, there's no two ways about it. One of the things that's changed in early pregnancy is ultrasound. Um, and, and I, again, I'm fairly convinced that this definitely changes the relationship with our, with our first trimester baby. Um, because we're bearing in mind that Smelly's talking about whether at five or six months we could just about work out if there's a baby in there. Um, we've got frighteningly good pictures now of early pregnancy um, ultrasound. And again, this is all new stuff. I mean, this is actually, um, this is Ian Donald, who was the 
the father of obstetric ultrasound scanning. Um, but this wasn't very long ago. This was only 1958 was the first obstetric ultrasound scan. Um, and these were the massive wieldy things. Um, and women had to lie there for ages. Um, this one's probably going to be feeling a bit faint flat in the back like that for too long. Um, but this here is the first ever published picture of a baby. Doesn't look like anything much, really, does it? So this is a fetal head, um, and uh, this is the first ever publishing in the literature. And, you know, people thought this was amazing. Um, but if you look at that um, compared to what we see now, this was um, in 1965, again, the same group, um, and this kind of snowstorm here. On the big black circle you can see is what we call the gestation sac. So that is the little fluid-filled sac that the developing embryo will grow in. Um, and this, where it says CRL, um, is what we call the crown rump length, which is in early pregnancy, what's the distance from the head to the bottom? And, you know, this was thought to be incredible. Um, this is the same baby now. So this is what we call a three-dimensional image, where ultrasounds are very clever now, they take pictures in two different dimensions, and the computer generates this third dimension. Um, and so you get this 3D appearance... This is at eight weeks of pregnancy. I think it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, and, and I think you've just got to look at that and think, do you not think you're going to develop some sort of emotional attachment or interaction to that? Of course you are. We've got, we've got the head, we've got some little ears here, we've got some little legs and arms, the developing cord coming round here. I mean, they are truly astonishing pictures. And this is not much later. And there's a brilliant business out there in all this, by the way. You can, if you want to go and make some money, get yourself to ultrasound trained and, um, you know, simplyintoyourarms.com, mybeautifulbaby.co.uk, and you can make a fortune. Um, but, you know, this is only at 14 weeks gestation. We see the hands, we can see the little toes, we can see what gender this baby is. Um, again, I just think that there is no way that you can see this and not find it a whole lot more difficult if this pregnancy doesn't continue than if you'd never seen it at all. And then the other thing that we're doing these days, and this is going to be part of the NHS within a few years, um, we already do ultrasound measurements to look at the various features that may give us an indication of various chromosomal problems. Um, the biggest chromosomal problem that the NHS worries about, well, it's Down syndrome, so where you get three copies of one of your chromosomes, chromosome 21. Um, but there are a whole lot of other extra chromosomes, missing chromosomes, that will either be incompatible with life and a baby will miscarry very early, or two different chromosome problems um, where the baby may well be born but will not survive. And, and so there are tests for this now. And, and the really clever test now is this non-invasive prenatal testing. And it's become clear that you get strands of DNA. So the placenta obviously has cells, and those cells have the genetics of the baby. Um, it seems that some of those cells release the DNA from those cells into the maternal blood. And they're so clever now, the geneticists, that we can take a blood sample from a woman, and then we can go on to look at the genetics of the baby, to exclude major chromosomal problems, but of course also determine the baby's gender. So, you know, within the first 12 weeks, and, and some places will do this for you at 10 weeks, you know all sorts about your baby. And again, so I suppose my argument would be, 
you might have been looking at these images and then I tell you you've got a major chromosomal problem and what you're going to do about it and again I think it's a question at least is that going to be more difficult now we've seen all this or is it you know is it always going to be as painful I don't know but I think we need to think about it and of course this is the other thing at the web and when I put this slide, I put I nearly put the empowerment of the question mark, but then I thought you'd all think I'm a terrible paternalistic doctor, so I took the question mark off. Because um, I think it's um, really important to see what's out there. For me as a clinician, I need to know what's out there for my patients and what they're looking at. Um, and so they may have had their 3D ultrasound scan at 8 or 10 weeks, but if they haven't, they'll have seen someone else's 3D ultrasound scan on their app and they'll be able to know exactly what at each changing bit of gestation their baby is doing. Does my baby have fingers and toes yet? Is my baby's brain developed yet? You know, what, what their joint says. It, it, they, it's all there and it's all available for, for women to look at. Um, you can track your weight gain. You can worry about exactly how many days you are. Um, you can compare your baby to an apple seed or to a peanut. And in fact, one of my patients came into my clinic the other day and said and started talking about peanut. And then I realised that peanut was the third miscarriage she had slightly down the line. And this is because she will have been reading some of this stuff and it will have been telling her, this is the size of your baby when that baby died. And, you know, we've been doing this for a while, so it isn't all completely new family. This is just what the NHS offers women, which is a book called Emma's Diary, which, again, carefully... Um, details what goes on at each stage of um, each stage of gestation and I'm not making a criticism for this in any shape or form I have you know I think it's important that what the technology that I understand that patients understand as well but I think it doesn't come without questions and complexity so that's being pregnant but there's also the getting pregnant and I'm sure that this uh, the world we live in where we know that fertility problems are increasing, again, probably mainly related to age, but also the market out there to drive people to be interested in their fertility. You know, when my mum had a baby, she just went and had a baby. When I had a baby, I could um, track my fertility, I could use my app, I could worry about whether I should have IVF, I could decide whether I ought to be having 27,000 different multivitamins, and again, all of it, I think, has an impact and I think, um, again, very much of it is market-driven, if I'm honest, and very little of it is evidence-based. Um, interestingly, when it comes to tracking your fertility, um, we've just finished a big randomised controlled trial, so it's what's thought to be the gold standard trial, um, where you compare a drug uh, with a placebo drug, and we've done that for women having recurrent miscarriage uh, and looking at a particular immune treatment. And... Um, Interestingly, the pregnancy rates were rubbish, and, and we're not the first people to see this. Um, very many groups who've done research and, and trials looking at uh, drugs where we specifically ask women to time when they're going to get pregnant, when their fertile period is, you often get really rubbish pregnancy test results. And that seems to be because everybody is concentrating on the moment. When is the light flashing orange and I have to rush off and have sex with my partner? And, and it actually doesn't seem to really help. And of course, it's a, it's a multi-million pound business. You can get your fertility MOTs. You could be 25 and go and get some arbitrary figure as to how likely it is you're going to get pregnant naturally when you're 40. Um, and all of that, I think, just builds up the, uh, 
the feeling of it all being important long before we even want to think about it. I'm also going to talk to you about, about IVF. So an egg freezing is perhaps the ultimate one of that. Um, that you know, if you're in, if you're working for Google or Facebook, they'll they'll freeze your eggs for you, so you don't have to worry when you're you're a bit older. And again, this is what's out there in terms of. Um, I love this one. It says tracking monthly cycle is beautifully complex, which is sort of not really. If you have a four weekly cycle, you're probably going to ovulate at the same point every month. Um, but, you know, the people behind this app will be getting God knows what in advertising from people like this who want you to take your 40 different complex vitamins, minerals, etc., etc., whereas if you just sort of eat well, you're probably fine. Um, and I think that when I'm in my clinic, especially with the recurrent miscarriage patients and also the fertility patients, um, I spend my whole life saying, you know, go and have a glass of wine or go away and just, I don't know, Take, I'm not saying take some illegal drugs, but you know what I mean. You just want to say, go away and do something bad. Because um, they spend their whole time, every moment of their life, from waking up to going to bed, it's about how they achieve that pregnancy. Um, and I think this sends you mad, frankly. I think you don't stand a chance. So I'm going to talk to you a bit about IVF, just because I think it's, it's part and parcel of what happens in fertility medicine now. And it's a bit of a kind of, everybody knows about IVF, it's all over the Sunday papers, but nobody ever really talks about what happens, what's it like? Is it any good? Does it work? Um, and how is it to go through a cycle? So I will just briefly describe to you what, it, what an IVF cycle's like. Um, because if you are ever doing work with fertility patients, um, I think it's really useful. I say this to the GPs all the time. GPs have a clue about IVF. Um, but they will have loads of patients that have it. And if you're interested in fertility, um, then you're going to meet people who have had IVF. So the first thing to say is subfertility is really, really common. Um, about one in seven couples won't get pregnant. And we sort of the classic WHO definition of subfertility um, is, do you get pregnant after a year um, of actively trying to conceive and not using contraception. Um, so it's, it's really common. We do loads of IVF. So in the UK, about 65,000 cycles a year. And we've got to the point where one in 50 babies is conceived <coughs> through IVF. And my guess is that will continue to rise to perhaps, a, I don't know, 4% mark or something like that, which is much closer to how it is in the States. There's a massive international variation. It depends on where you're... Uh, where you live, what the healthcare funding is like. Um, in the States, as I say, it's a lot more common. If you go to Israel, they're the most highly used IVF um, providers uh, in the world for a very many, n large number of political and social reasons as much as anything else. Um, but it's increasingly common, and you'll all know people who've been through it. And, of course, I think the thing you have to remember about IVF, and this is, sounds really obvious, but certainly I think as clinicians we forget is at the point at which people are going through IVF, they've been through years of painful subfertility or miscarriage or both. <coughs> and this is how they describe it. They all describe it like this. It's like the common feature. Everybody says it's this ultimate roller coaster experience. Um, and it goes from, you know, every single thing that happens to you. Did that go well? Did this go badly? Maybe this bit went well. And I'll just describe the cycle of IVF to you, and then you'll get a flavour of why that is the case. So it's a multi-step process. It takes quite a while. There are different ways of doing it, but in the UK, the vast majority of people do what we call a long cycle, a long protocol of IVF. 
And between my patients phoning up and saying we'd like, we'd like to start a treatment cycle this month and actually doing a pregnancy test will take about, about nine weeks. So it's not an insignificant period of time. And it involves switching the ovaries off, stimulating the ovaries, collecting some eggs, then doing an embryo transfer and a horrible pregnancy test wait. So what we do in our clinic is that we um, give patients a drug three weeks into their normal menstrual cycle uh, that uh, switches off their pituitary hormones. Now, your pituitary hormones um, are the hormones that send a signal down to your ovaries to get it to produce an egg. And so what you do is you switch that whole process off, essentially, so that we can take control of the ovaries externally with drugs uh, and get them to do what we want them to do. It can be quite nasty in terms of side effects. Loads of people are absolutely fine. But um, essentially what it's doing is making your ovaries menopausal for a few weeks. So if you do that very suddenly, that can cause a lot of symptoms for some women. And then we get people um, doing their own injections. So we use a drug called FSH, which is the pituitary hormone, so a follicle-stimulating hormone, um, and you inject that drug, you get the patients to inject themselves, 10 days, 2 weeks, and from about day 6 or 7, we see the patients every couple of days to monitor them. And this is just a picture of what happens in a, well, firstly in a normal menstrual cycle, so this is a, an ultrasound picture here of an ovary, this thing here is a developing follicle, which is not pointed, so say I meant it pointed over there. Um, and that would hopefully that would contain the egg. That egg would be popped out normally, and if the woman was planning a pregnancy, hopefully that would occur. But what we do in IVF is we're trying to get um, a number of follicles to develop because we're trying to get lots of eggs. So the entire success rate of IVF is related to getting lots of eggs getting as many of those fertilised as, as you can and getting lots of embryos. And if you get lots of embryos, the more embryos you've got, essentially you put those embryos in a race um, to success, which ones look better, which ones grow quicker. Um, so the more you've got, the more likely you are to have a good one at the end and the more likely you are, therefore, uh, for the woman to get pregnant. So she's got these fairly enormous ovaries that can be often quite uncomfortable. And at the point at which we think these follicles are are ready to go, um, then we do an egg collection. So in some parts of the world it's done under local anaesthetic, in some parts of the world it's done under general anaesthetic, we do it under sedation. Um, so pardon if you're squeamish, but this is a uterus. Um, we've got some ovaries, this is an IVF ovary that's got loads of um, follicles in. Um, and what we do is we use an ultrasound scan that's inserted into the vagina, and we put a needle into the ovary. And we can, it's really actually quite a simple procedure, um, but you can um, drain each of those follicles, so you get fluid out of follicles. We pass that fluid over to our embryologists who look under the microscope, um, and they, they're looking for eggs. And so the first thing is that the patients are coming through. How many follicles have I got? How many follicles have I got? And, you know, if you say 50, that might be really dangerous for you, but she's thinking, yes. And if you think, you know, if she's got one or two, she's beside herself, she's gone through all of this, and it's probably not much better off than just getting on with it naturally and on average we get about seven or eight um, eggs and we get about eggs from about 75% of the follicles but it really can go between two and 30 or 40 and this is what we're looking for so this is a picture of a nice egg this is the egg here you see all these cells around it that just um, cells that support the egg and of course we get the blokes to do a semen test uh, and then Either we chuck the eggs and the sperm together if there's enough decent quality sperm, 
or again varies internationally but in our unit probably about 40% of cases you actually take all those cells off the egg and you inject a sperm into the egg and you do that in cases where the, where, where the sperm test the quality or the quantity isn't good enough and so when we're on our roller coaster she's got I don't know 10 eggs woo! and then the next day you say we're only four fertilised oh my goodness and that's how it is. So it's you go from how many follicles I've got, how many eggs do I get out, how many are fertilised, um, and then when you see how many are fertilised, we leave them for a few days in an incubator and we watch them develop. And as we watch them develop, we can start to tell more about them. So back in the early days of IVF, well, this is the day after the, after the uh, egg collection, we see these little two things here. That shows us it's a normally fertilised egg. Early IVF, we used to do embryo transfers here because we were worried about having them in our laboratories. Um, we weren't as good as, as we are now, I suppose, but, but you would have a two-cell egg embryo or a four-cell embryo, and you would put back two, three embryos at that stage. Um, We've worked out that the longer we grow them, up to day five, the better chance we've got of working out which embryo is going to be a good one, which is going to implant. Um, so this is an embryo on day three, where you've got about eight to ten cells. So on day four, where it forms a tight ball, you can't tell a lot, we ignore them then. And then we get to day five here, and this is what we call a blastocyst. And here we've got there, it is the, uh, what we call an inner cell mass, that becomes a baby. And this stuff on the outside what becomes a placenta and it's looking at these that makes us decide which one to put back and this I find really interesting about IVF our patients are so well um, versed in the process in many cases um, and they come in it's Saturday morning I'm doing my 10 embryo transfers and you say right I've got a nice quality embryo to put back for you today potentially we've got one or two to put in the freezer is that okay and she said, what grade is it? What grade is it? And, and people are so well-versed that, you know, there are scoring systems um, about what makes a really nice embryo and what doesn't. Um, and so, you know, for example, this one here is a really beautiful one, and we call it a, a, a 4AA or a 4AB. And it is so normal for my patients to know so much about their embryos that they're writing it down. And it doesn't change anything, of course, but it probably changes the experience of what it's like to be knowing you've got a living embryo with a good chance or a not-so-good chance or a slightly borderline chance. Um, I, I think it's really interesting. And this, well, this is a bit of paper that you get from an IVF unit. Um, some of them, not all of them, but they might, they'll show you, they'll give you this, and they'll say, this is little Johnny. Um, in actual fact, this is little Ella, who's my daughter. Um, and this is her at day five. Now, I can say all this to you now, because it's fine and it worked and I had her. But I, this is a really crumpled bit of paper at the bottom of my desk, because I'm a gynaecologist and that's what you do with that sort of bit of paper. You think, don't be so bloody ridiculous, I'm not keeping that. And then when you're pregnant, you're sort of hunting for it, because you think it might be quite good for her to look at in five years, ten years' time. But I just think that's... You know, that's, this is personal. That's weird. And, and I think it can't but help have an effect on um, the impression you have of your early pregnancy um, and the consequences when it goes wrong. And, and this is old hat now. We did, you know, they do better than this now. They don't just give you a picture of your embryo when you're at the IVF clinic. Some places, 
you can actually log online and watch your embryo develop. So this is something called an embryoscope. And what an embryoscope does is it looks at the um, embryo as it develops. The thought is that it might be the process of developing, not just the, what it looks like at the end of the day on day five. Um, so, oh, is it not working? Hmm, is that working? It is, isn't it? Yeah. So it's divided into two cells, three cells there. So this is about day three now, we're getting to about eight cells, and that mush in the middle, this is day four. And then you'll start to see it becoming what we look for, which is this blastocyst, which is this nice expanded number of cells with this inner cell mass here. There are IVF units where you can log online and look at your embryo doing this. Of course, I think it's difficult, it's important just to note that it's not a, it's not a completely painless, risk-free procedure. And I think, again, it's just to be thought of, you know, somebody normally going to get pregnant, yeah, you know, it's not necessarily straightforward, but most of the time you think there's not a lot of consequence, especially in the early stages. But these are the sort of things that there, there are quite a lot of medical complications that can come with IVF. Um, one of the most dramatic is something called hyperstimulation that can involve women being in hospital, that women have died having ovarian hyperstimulation. Um, it's not an insignificant condition. The surgery, the egg collection, essentially is surgery, so you can get infection, you can damage the bowel, you can damage the bladder. These things do happen. We've, you know, I've had women who have ended up with colostomies after IVF treatment. Um, multiple pregnancy, well, actually, it's probably the biggest risk of IVF, and we drive in this country, certainly, to try and reduce those risks now by putting back one embryo rather than two if we can. An ectopic pregnancy, and, of course, miscarriage. And, of course, it's interesting that, actually... I was doing most medical treatments with this rubbish success rate, people wouldn't probably go for it. Um, it remains not that successful. And it's entirely age-dependent, but if you're young, if you're less than 35, you still only have a one in three chance of a baby, a live birth, at the end of the cycle. And by the time you're in your early 40s, it's, it's in single figures. And again, this is the, the, the depressing graph again. Um, but it, you know, there is a catastrophic decline in success rates as you get to your early forties, um, and uh, and you know you, that's not really the story you hear, is it? You hear about the developing technologies, you hear about the success, and of course it's not just the emotional cost; it's phenomenally expensive. And although there is some NHS funding in in, uh, in various parts of the country, it's a lot better than others. For example, in Oxfordshire, it's particularly poor. Um, and the only chance of NHS funding, you have to be less than 35. Um, and by the time you've worked out you've had two years of subfertility, you're quite likely to be more than 35. Um, you can't smoke, you've got to have a normal body mass, you've got to you know, fit a lot of criteria. Um, so the vast majority of IVF in the UK remains um, in the hands of the private sector. Uh, and as a consequence, it's phenomenally expensive. And this is a very bold standard treatment of cycle of IVF. The things I've circled would be the local fertility unit, um, and you are at least talking in the realms of £5,500 per cycle, uh, and very, very, very commonly that can be doubled. And again, you put £5,000 into the pregnancy, and 
I can't but help think it makes some difference to the, how you feel about it when it all goes wrong. And of course, the other thing to say about embryos is that, well, I showed you that bit earlier that talked about this kind of pyramid of how many never make it. And the reason they never make it is, is largely because of the genetics of the chromosomes of the embryo not being normal. Humans are incredibly inefficient at producing chromosomally normal embryos. Um, and this is a paper um, just looking at, don't worry too much about these, but these are getting probably better developed embryos. And this stuff here, looking at, so looking at large, large numbers, 2,000 or so embryos, where they've genetically tested the embryos, looked at the chromosomes, and even in these embryos, these are all decent embryos, less than 50% of them are chromosomally normal. But all this stuff up here are a variety of different chromosomally abnormal embryos. So you go through your cycle, and we don't genetically test the majority of patients' embryos. We go on how they look. Um, but we know from studies that at least half of them aren't going to be chromosomally normal. And that old depressing age thing again, when you look at chromosomally normal embryos, if you do IVF in a 23 or a 25-year-old, you might get 60-odd <coughs> percent of them being chromosomally normal. So again, these blue bars here are the chromosomally normal and everything above it are abnormal. And you can see... By the time you get into your very early 40s, you're talking about 70% of embryos. If we biopsy them in the clinic, we would find they weren't genetically normal. So you've gone through all that. You've gone through the emotional, the financial cost. Um, and in actual fact, nature's massively against you. And there's a lot of people that therefore argue that we should be testing embryos all of the time. Um, and uh, so there's a test called pre-implantation genetic screening. Um, where you aim to replace the chromosomally normal embryo, and in many parts of the world, of course, it's also used because people will want to choose the gender of the embryo, um, which is, is not legal here. Um, and what you do is, so this is a, these are chromosomes, you'll remember from your back in the day school science, um, and we talked earlier about Down syndrome, where you get an extra 20, chromosome 21. In this case here, we're looking at an extra chromosome 13, um, that pregnancy can often develop to term, but it won't, it won't live much beyond that. And there are very, very, very many genetic mistakes of extra chromosomes or missing chromosomes where you find that um, that pregnancy will either not implant or it will miscarry. So the proponents of pre-implantation genetic screening say, oh, we must do this to everybody, we absolutely must do this for everybody, we'll charge them another £2,500 on their IVF cycle and it will all be better because we'll only be putting back chromosomes in normal embryos. But the problem with this is, is that by the time we've grown our embryos to day five, there's obviously often only one or two decent ones, or indeed less than one or two decent ones. Um, and so you, you could biopsy them and spend your extra two and a half thousand pounds, or you could take your chances. And the majority of people will take their chances, because that's a lot of money to most people. We do have patients that will say, under all circumstances, I don't want anything to go back if I haven't biopsied them. Um, because what they're desperate to avoid is miscarriage. But it's certainly not the, um, the panacea that the people who tend to own the businesses and uh, encourage the patients and produce the science about behind this would argue. I'm just going to very briefly mention the issue of snake oil. Um, as I say, if you were there when Raj talked a couple of weeks ago, he, um, he did talk to this in a degree. But again, I think Justin 
thinking about the investment IVF patients or recurrent miscarriage patients have in their pregnancy, it is very often a financial one. Um, the Daily Mail, I always get my best snaps from the Daily Mail because they've always got the most far-fetched nuts stuff. But, um, but natural killer cells are the sort of story of the moment in reproductive medicine. Um, and sounds quite attractive, doesn't it? If there are some cells called natural killer cells that could attack your baby and either stop it implanting or, or, or cause it to miscarry. Um, and it's just really unfortunate for the world of reproductive medicine that these cells happen to be called natural killer cells. Um, they were called that originally because they attacked. Uh, they're, they're known to be the kind of first line of defence against viruses and tumour cells. Um, but there is a whole industry out there that will tell our patients that you should have the next test that you should have the next treatment. Um, and at a fertility unit somewhere now here, which are, is not Oxford, um, but um, you can add on to your um, IVF cycle for a small fee of £780, what would be a blood test that has no evidence whatsoever that it makes any difference as to what the findings of this blood test are and what, what the outcome of your pregnancy will be. But you can go on and spend your 1,200 quid to have a completely non-proven treatment that will also um, is not been shown to be in any benefit whatsoever. Um, so you start adding these things together, and uh, you know it's a phenomenal amount of money that we're asking patients to invest on the grounds of nothing whatsoever. Um, that I don't think again is going to help when the next pregnancy does go wrong. So what does it all mean for the patients? Well, is it worse when these happen? things happen in an IVF pregnancy compared to another pregnancy? Well, I think there is at least some evidence to say that the, uh, the impact of, say, miscarriage after the process of IVF may be worse for patients um, than a spontaneously conceived pregnancy. And, of course, it's not rocket science, is it? Because it is about the investment they've had, the personal investment in that pregnancy. And these are just a couple of papers that looked at um, these are uh, quality of life questionnaires, so impact of stress questionnaire and a general health questionnaire. And, and they you know, do find, unsurprisingly, statistically significant differences um, in, in the effect of a pregnancy loss for those people that have been undergoing ART versus those who had a natural conception. And I suspect the same would be true as if you just looked at the people who happened to get pregnant after four years of trying um, versus those that got pregnant immediately. Um, it's perhaps one of the last things I wanted to talk about was just to mention or to raise the issue of egg freezing um, because it does seem to me to be the ultimate way of um, worrying about the pregnancy, investing in your pregnancy very, very, very early on. Um, it's, it's not common in the UK, but it's, uh, it's getting a lot common, more common very, very quickly, is my experience. Um, so essentially, it's the process of IVF I described to you without the fertilisation, but the eggs that you retrieve are put in the, put in the freezer for a later date. Um, and I think the things that we really need to be careful about here is we haven't any idea about the success rates. There have been 12 live births in the UK after egg freezing. Um, and... Now, that's not to say that I think it can't be successful. I think it probably will be relatively successful. But at the best, I think if you go through a single cycle of IVF, you may potentially have something like... Well, it depends on the age you have your eggs frozen. But if you had your eggs frozen at 32, maybe you'd have something approaching a 50% chance of a live birth if you then went on and used those eggs 10, 20 years later. 
So I, I think it's a real worry what we're saying to women in terms of how that may solve their fertility problems or, or not. It is very age dependent. The women that come to our clinic asking for egg tape freezing tend to be women who are 41 and just haven't, haven't happened to find the right partner. But my guess is the success rates in those circumstances would be 5%, 10% and no more. So it costs and there's no guarantees. So I think that's most of what I wanted to say. But, you know, in summary, I guess, has technology changed things? Well, I think it really has. I think it's good, you know, it's good evidence and my, my personal reflection of the patients I deal with that it's changed things enormously for them. And that's not to say that technology is bad. Clearly it's not. There are very many couples who go on and have babies that otherwise wouldn't have done. There are very many single people that go on and have babies that could never have done so previously. Um, but I think it's complicated things somewhat um, because we're just much, much more engaged in the events around our pre-implantation and post early post-implantation events. Thank you.